And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. The name Pete Buttigieg is hard to say and was largely unknown before his recent race for Democratic National Committee chair, in which the South Bend mayor raised a lot of eyebrows with his compelling candidacy. Just 35, he already has an extraordinary story and great insights into the politics of our country, and particularly that part of the country uh, that was so instrumental uh, in electing Donald Trump in the last election. We sat down and talked about all of this with Mayor Pete on a recent visit to the Institute of Politics. Mayor Pete of South Bend. Now, everybody calls you Mayor Pete. Right. For a reason, which is nobody quite knows how to pronounce your last name. So if nothing else comes from this podcast, let it be that everyone in, who, in, within the sound of our vo- uh, <laughs> range of our voices will uh, know how to pronounce your name. Yeah, Buttigieg. Buttigieg. That's it, Buttigieg. So it rolls off the tongue. Like Buddha and Jig. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I knew that, but I wanted you to hear, I wanted to hear you uh, say it. It's a it's a Maltese name. Over there, it's like Jones. It's a very common. If you, if you see the name anywhere, you know you're dealing with somebody from Malta, and and that's where your family's from. Yeah, my father. He came over in the '70s to uh, uh, work on his education. Uh, he went to uh, Binghamton in upstate New York, and then he became an American citizen after that, and met my mom pretty soon after that, and then I came on the scene. And and what was your mom? Doing. She was. She grew up as a as an army brat uh, in southern Indiana and then uh, Texas and a few other places. And uh, they were both junior faculty in in New Mexico. Uh, she did linguistics and he did English. And uh, uh, they were in Las Cruces, New Mexico. I think they call it Sticker Bush State. I don't know. It's actually uh, New Mexico State University. I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, and they were. That's how they met. Uh, sometime in the late seventies and. Uh, and then um, uh, the first tenure track job either one of them got was up at Notre Dame. And so they came, I don't think expecting to settle in South Bend for very long, but uh, they're still there. And uh, what, what was, tell me about uh, growing up in South Bend. Obviously, Notre Dame is a huge yeah. influence in the community. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great town. It's a great place to grow up. I think people, though, who haven't seen it maybe aren't aware of the, of the history. So it really didn't grow up around education. It grew up around industry. And, you know, at the end of the street I lived on as a little kid was this huge, towering, crumbling uh, factory. Actually, it was a brewery, Drury's. Um, it just got torn down a couple of weeks ago, um, but it had been quiet since the 70s or 80s. And as a kid, I, I didn't understand that, that uh, crumbling factories wasn't just kind of something any city would have. Uh, you know, we lost uh, 20,000, 30,000 people after Studebaker stopped making cars in the 60s. And so the town very much had that feel of, of trying to figure out what it was going to be if it wasn't going to be an auto town anymore. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I had a great childhood there. My, my boyhood revolved around this, this triangular park uh, by our house. It didn't really have much to it. It didn't even have a swing set or anything. But it's just a great, you know, it was, it was a good place to have a sense of neighborhood and a sense of community. And I'd ride my little bike to downtown, which didn't have a lot going on. But there was a place I could use my own money to buy something. Enough going McDonald's. on, but not enough to get you into trouble. Is that the... <laughs> That's about right, yeah. Did you, um, was there a sense of division between those uh, folks who made their living from the university and the folks who lived in this other South Bend where factories were closed and people were uh, being displaced? Yeah, I I think football culture kind of brought everybody together. So, you know, our uh, our next-door neighbors uh, uh, was a cop, and he and my dad would go to the football games together until I was old enough for him to bring me. And, and um, there was never a sense of kind of tension, I think, or, or hostility, but there was a sense that the two were totally separate, that the university was doing its thing and the city was doing its thing, and they just happened to be co-located. And that, that started to break down a few years ago and, and has really changed now. It's one of the best things we have going for us as a city is that the university has really stepped up and I think recognized its, its leadership role in, in helping the city move forward, and, and, and the city's reached out in return. Now, you were a, uh, a, you were a student politician. You were the <laughs> class president and valedictorian uh, which probably pissed a lot of people off. Nobody likes <laughs> nobody likes perfection, you know. But um, um, what 
what attracted you to that, and were you interested in politics generally? Yes and no. I always cared about politics. My parents were very politically conscious. They were never politically involved or connected in a direct way, but um, but they cared. I mean, it was dinner table talk all the time. And um, uh, But I was pretty well into high school thinking I was going to be uh, a pilot. I thought that was going to be my thing, an airline pilot. And I thought that was a very good lifestyle to, to, to aspire to. Um, something hit me right around, I guess, junior or senior year that made me start thinking that, that maybe I could do public service. Um, and, uh, uh, and then college really lit a fire, uh, in that regard. But, uh, um, I'd say most of my, uh, actually didn't realize that being good at school could lead to you also doing well in politics. As strange as that sounds. Um, I, I always saw politicians as more kind of, um, so, you know, I was kind of awkward and, and shy and I, I saw politicians as the kind of, you know, confident backslapping types, which, which was not how I saw myself, but over, over time. And I, I think also seeing Bill Clinton, seeing, you know, a Rhodes scholar in office who was relatable, but also really intellectual made me realize that, that maybe I could kind of make it all add up and, and be useful that way. You wrote this essay in high school. I, I met you when you were getting this New Frontier Award yeah. from the Kennedy Library yeah. uh, as uh, for your for your leadership in South Bend. Uh, and uh, I learned that you had – this was the second time you had picked up an award from yeah. from that, <laughs> that crowd. Yeah. Uh, the first time was when you were in high school, and you wrote an essay, and of all things – the essay was about Bernie Sanders. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I like to say I'm like a hipster. I like to say that I you know, knew about him before he was cool. Um, <laughs> not a lot of people were talking about Bernie Sanders, but I, I don't know how I found out about him. But I just thought it was really interesting. He had this guy who uh, uh, you know, called himself a socialist and survived and um, you know, wore his ideas on his sleeve, but also seemed to be capable of working with Republicans, actually even more than some Democrats were. That, that was what really – I thought was interesting. It was that early lesson that often, you know, conviction politics can actually make you more convincing, not less, with with independents and folks on the other side of the aisle, because at least they know that you're motivated by values, even even if your values are different. He um, uh, he. Were, were you surprised to see him emerge in this in this last? Oh yeah, campaign? I never could have imagined that he would be you know a senator, let alone a, a president. Maybe he read your essay and took it seriously. <laughs> I doubt he needed my essay for anything, but uh, um, but yeah, it was it was really something to to watch. You know what? Fifteen years later, watch that happen. You went to Harvard mm-hmm. and you got involved in the in the Harvard uh, uh, IOP. Then you were yep. president of the Harvard IOP. By then, were you? Was it your thought that public service was the way you wanted to go? Yeah, I, I kind of – by then I headed down to either that or journalism. And uh, I spent a summer actually here in Chicago uh, working for a TV station. And um, and I enjoyed that. But but the more I got into it, the more I felt like the real chance to, to make a difference was uh, was in politics. I don't know if I understood that that meant running. I certainly didn't understand that'd be, uh, that would involve running for mayor of my hometown. Um, but I really caught the bug there. You know, the, the institute there was really designed – as a living memorial to JFK or right. kind of designed around this, this idea that, that something happened to him when he was in college that excuse me, inspired him to, to want to serve. And, and this idea that politics could be noble and, and should be. Um, and I think that really got, got into my bones when I was there. And plus it's just magical as a, you know, kid from Indiana to see, you know, senators and governors and, you know, prime ministers coming to speak at this Institute and just, just kind of soaking it up. We, uh, I should give credit where credit is due. You know, I'm on the board of the IOP at Harvard yeah. and really was the inspiration of mm-hmm. this Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. And the vision of the Kennedy family was that these institutes would replicate themselves all over the country so that young people at universities across the country, not just elite universities, would uh, be inspired to think about yeah. careers in in politics and in public service we we still have a long ways to go to propagate yeah. uh large numbers of them but uh but i i'm shameless about stealing all their good ideas <laughs> their ideas worth stealing so you um you you did get involved in a campaign you know, jill yeah. thompson uh, yeah. uh, was uh oh, jill right. long yeah. when i first worked for her she was one of my early clients uh ran for congress in uh, Indiana, very long shot race. Mm-hmm. I think it was a special election in 1989. Yeah, and I remember calling her and I said, uh, "I'm David Axelrod. I'm a p- 
political consultant, and I want to call you and see what you were up to and how I could get involved. And she said, well, right now I'm vacuuming my house, so if you want to come over here and pick up the vacuum, <laughs> you can give me a hand. That but, sounds like Jill. But she uh, she ended up winning a, an, we, an upset race, and she, yeah. she was uh, – she was a very successful uh, politician in Indiana. Yeah, yeah. So she had, uh, by the time I got to know her, she had left Congress and uh, was was trying to come back and was running in, uh, what, 2002. So I came home uh, for a summer from, uh, uh, must have been after my sophomore year, and uh, and tried to work on, did work on the campaign. And just learned a lot about retail politics and um and what running for Congress was like. I think I lost uh, a lot of illusions about the the glamour of it all, just realizing how how much of it's just just getting out to you know parades in in small towns. And but we had a great time, and uh, she she didn't make it. But uh, um, you know, it was that that it was that rare exception to the midterm rule when uh, you know the the Bush White House didn't really see a a big hit in Congress and that kind of unusual period right. after nine eleven, right. the build up to the Iraq War. Um, it, was, it was kind of a confusing time, I think, politically. But um, but it was great for me to be involved to have a competitive congressional race in, in my hometown. And you headed down to Arizona and worked for John Kerry down there? Yeah, as soon as I got out of college. I, I, I knew that I had some kind of job coming on the Kerry campaign, but I couldn't figure out what to do, and they didn't really call much. So I, <laughs> I moved to Washington, and then two or three days later, uh, after graduating, got a phone call from Arizona saying, I hear you're my new research director. And uh, I said, okay, well, well I'll, I'll, I'll get there. I said, how soon can you come? I think it was on a Monday. She said, can you work on Friday? I said, I'm, I'm not sure. Do I need a car? She said, yeah, buy a car tomorrow, start driving, <laughs> and you'll be here in time to work on Friday. So that's basically what happened. And um, uh, we realized toward the end that Arizona wasn't going to happen for uh, for John Kerry. So for the last few weeks, I'd, uh, they, they put me and, and some of my colleagues in New Mexico and uh, it was fun organizing in the Southwest, completely different from anything I knew in Indiana. Um, How you know, so? What, what, what did you learn down there? Well, Indian country, for one thing, and, and, and the significance of the, of the native vote. It was also, frankly, the, the first time I really understood voter suppression and voter intimidation because, you know, the, the native vote is, is arguably the most reliable demographic for Democrats right up there uh, and sometimes surpasses African-American vote in terms of just how high the percentage is. Uh, but also a lot of folks who are very uh, suspicious or uncomfortable around uh, power for understandable reasons. And uh, we picked up stories of uh, a vehicle, white SUV with a star on the side or something like that, that uh, with a couple guys in suits glaring at people that would just set up next to a voting location. And pretty soon word would go out through the reservation that you know people were being watched and it would really affect turnout. And um, uh, it was it was the first time I understood how, how that sort of thing worked and how it might impact election outcomes. So that was a dark lesson. We had a lot of fun, too, and, and it was interesting campaigning in those wide open spaces, but uh, learned a lot from that campaign. You did a master's degree in between. You went to were you? Is that when you did your Rhodes scholarship? Yeah, yeah. Ch- Chaston teases me, my partner, that it's not real graduate school because I was doing a second BA. Apparently, there's this funny custom at Oxford that if I if I show up and give him twenty bucks or something, it'll be converted into an MA. But just for resume honesty, it was, it's it's another BA. But yeah, it's a PPE program, so philosophy, politics, and economics, and um, uh, really rigorous. Actually, I had no idea how hard it was going to be. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, with the community of, of Rhodes Scholars and, and, and other Americans who were studying there, um, really enjoyed it, learned a ton. And um, and that was another, that was the first winning campaign, I guess, I was involved with, because I spent the summer of 06 at home working for Joe Donnelly, who was uh, in what was then his, his first running, uh, his first winning race for U.S. House. Yeah, and ultimately... Uh the, he 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 got elected to the United States Senate. Yeah. We're going to talk about that in a bit because he's one of the candidates who's up and mm. exposed uh, mm-hmm. uh, potentially in the uh, in the midterm uh, election. And then you worked in the Obama campaign in uh, in two thousand and seven, two thousand eight. You were one yeah. of the throngs in <laughs> uh, in Iowa. Yeah, I took some. I was, I was uh, I'd been at McKinsey uh, Consulting, and I just couldn't stand that I wasn't involved in in that campaign. So you spent was, three uh, years there, right, McKinsey? Yeah. yeah, somewhere between two and three years there. I and, should stop before we get to the campaign because yeah. I don't want to sail through <laughs> your life here. Yeah. What, what did you learn there? Oh, what did you pick up there? A ton. I went there straight out of Oxford, and uh, 
um, I thought it would be good for me to do math for a living for a while. And so I, I did a lot of analytical work, um, stuff that doesn't sound that interesting, like uh, grocery pricing, for example. I spent months working on grocery pricing, which was actually fascinating. I had to build a whole database. Uh, and, and that was when I learned about how big data works, uh, relational databases, a lot of stuff that surprisingly uh, has, has served me well as mayor and, and, and in the campaign world. Um, and learned how to work under you know, a huge amount of pressure to do things when everybody can agree. The big difference with politics, I thought, was that everybody could generally agree on what the aim was. Like, there's a number on a sheet of paper, and if it goes up, you're doing well, and if it goes down, you're not. And that kind of clarity of purpose and, and, and sort of simplicity, um, I thought, was really something useful from the private sector. And uh, um, so I did a lot of studies, and we worked on energy efficiency stuff, um, uh, it was actually the, uh, my, my first, uh, travels to, to war zones were, were at McKinsey as well. We were doing some economic development work there. Um, the only th- the reason I, I, I couldn't stick with it was I had, I had trouble caring about something cause I was being, cause it was my job cause I was being paid to care about something. And so even though I loved the, I thought the work was fascinating. I love my colleagues. Um, uh, certainly paid very well, but, um, I remember a moment in particular when I was just working on this, this, uh, client study and I got up to get a cup of coffee and I thought, I don't care. Uh, like, you know, I care about my professionalism and doing a good job for the client, but I don't actually care about this work the way I did, you know, the political work or, or other things I'd got to do. And that's when I realized I needed to, I needed to do more with public service. So did you quit to go to Iowa? Um, no, I just took a little time off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so rounded up, uh, rounded up a couple of friends from college and, and we all hit the road and, and um, were sent to, we said, you know, just send us wherever. And we wound up in, in three or four counties in South Central Iowa, Ringgold, Decatur, uh, Union counties, uh, really low income, uh, some of the, the poorest counties in the state. Uh, but these really wonderful communities. And, you know, we were just knocking on doors like everybody else. And, um, you know, at one point we were dispatched to the Dairy Queen because we were told that was the main social gathering place for, for the town we were working. And, um, yeah, just lived that primary, well, that caucus, I guess, uh, all the way up to caucus night when I found myself in this this middle school. And it just felt so American. The caucus went on. I, I don't think it was Caucuses our- are, I mean, it, it takes a big hit elsewhere yeah. because people resent the power sure. that the Iowa caucuses have. But there's yeah. something really uh, incredibly inspiring about yeah. the, a, a presidential race being reduced to the level where candidates actually have to meet with us with with people in groups of you know 10 or yeah. 5 or uh <laughs> yeah. and uh, really campaign at the ground level and then this whole process by which right. you know you try marshal votes and it, yeah. it's really a it's i think it's a great process yeah it was it was really instructive and uh, I think our goal there was to get one vote or something like that. You know, it was, it was yeah, mostly John Edwards because of the country, math of uh, yeah, it was still worth picking caucuses. Up. Yeah, um, and then uh, and then as we left, how'd you was, do? Uh, we did it. Yeah, I think we were in Murray that night, just like tiny town. And and if I remember right, I think we we walked away with a vote, which was all we were shooting for. And uh, but the thing I remember most for some reason is this this middle school basketball game. By vote, you mean like a, a a delegate to the county? Exactly. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, I, the, the arcane process yeah. that ultimately arrives at, yeah. Yeah. It's all the about national the convention, second choice logic, all the stuff right. I've just been dealing with the other yes. day in this DNC race, but, but yeah, it just felt, I don't know. It was very, it was very uplifting to see. And, um, we should point out that one of your Harvard, uh, classmates, maybe roommates, I'm not sure. Eric Lesser mm. was my assistant in the white house and, um, he had just gotten out of Harvard and volunteered yeah, and uh, got a job as the baggage handler on the campaign plane, which is how I I always figured if Lester could get my bags to the right place, he could get me to the right place. Yeah, I mean, what what I love about now he's that, a state senator from Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I love about Eric is that he, um, uh, yeah, and he's doing very good work in a community in Western Mass that is in many ways not that different from South Bend. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what was great about him was that uh, you know he's because you, you get certain ideas about yourself when you come out of a place like Harvard. Um, and you know, he, he was assigned to handling luggage and rather than feel kind of slighted or, um, that that was beneath him, like he devised some color coded bag tag system. I still have the like bag the, tags. Yeah. <laughs> like the best luggage handling system in campaign history. So I'm just threw himself into it. And, um, and obviously luckily for him caught your eye and, uh, went on to great things. Yeah. No. Well, it's, there's a lesson in that for, mm-hmm. uh, young people who are aspiring to, uh, yeah. to this work. Just jump in yeah, exactly. and do whatever 
whatever you can. And if you if you have an instinct for it, you're going to catch people's yeah. attention. One of the things that happened in 2009, uh, according to bio stuff that I've read, is uh, you um, you were moved by some of the experiences you had at the doors there and made a decision to uh, enlist. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'd always thought about serving in the military. There, there was a family tradition, and and I always it was never it was kind of never a good time. You know, I was going to college, I was going to grad school, I was working, and then, but I was realizing I wasn't getting any younger, and if I was going to serve, I had to, I had to step up. And the thing that really put me over the edge were those days in Iowa, and and the reason was that I was uh, you know you'd knock on these doors, and more than once a kid, I mean to my eye like a child would come to the door and we'd start talking and, 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 and the kid would say he was on his way to basic uh, for National Guard or Army. And um, it began to feel like this, these low-income towns were just emptying out their youth into the military. And I thought about, you know, I could count on like one hand the people I knew um, in college who wound up in the military. And, you know, having been steeped in Kennedy lore. There's all when I was this controversy at, at Harvard about the ROTC. And, yeah, yeah. in fact, they didn't even have it at my time. Right. I had to go to MIT to do ROTC. Um, but I was steeped in the Kennedy lore. You know, the idea that, like, when, when he was in the service in the, in, in the World War II era, it had this quality of, of cutting across class. You know, the, the military was a place where somebody like, you know, John F. Kennedy would meet, you know, somebody from a farming community in the South and be on equal terms. Um, and of course, it had a lot to do with racial integration too, uh, over time in, in the military. And, and it was this thing that kind of broke down those barriers. And I, I thought to kind of the era I was living in, and it felt like the reverse was true. It felt like it was reinforcing those divides that um, that it was low income and working class and, and rural communities that were emptying their youth into the military. And you know, people with 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 degrees like mine weren't serving very much. And so I started to think, you know, I got, I got to make myself useful too, or at least be exposed to the possibility of deploying. So, uh, so I marched down to a recruiting office and, um, uh, you weren't even in and you were marching, huh? <laughs> or, or at least walking pers- purposefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I got a commission into the reserve and, uh, um, and I'm really glad that I had that opportunity. We will, uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with, uh, uh Pete Buttigieg. The military, the decision to enter the military, um, the cynic would say that there was there a political motivation there. You talk about John F. Kennedy; it's a resume enhancer. I mean, did that cross your mind? Not really. I mean, it was more of the family tradition. Back when I thought I was going to be a pilot, I figured it was the best way to get uh, training, and, and then I learned that my eyesight precluded uh, uh, getting in that way. But uh, as a frequent tra- traveler, I appreciate that realization. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, maybe it was for the best. No, I, I don't know. I've, I've reflected on that. Um, the thing I asked myself was if if it was as damaging politically as it is actually helpfully politi- helpful politically, would I have still done it? I hope the answer is yes. Um, there's no way to know. There's no way to run that experiment, I guess. But, what are the um, experience? Uh, in, I quite agree with you, by the way. I mean, it's it's one more measure of the kind of silos in which we live today. And you speak of John F. Kennedy. The thing that yeah. distinguished that generation was everyone had fought in World War II. And there was this was a common experience that bound yeah. people together right. as Americans in a larger community. I think one of the things that helped dissolve that sort of sense of comedy in our politics with a T mm. is that that generation passed from the scene and then mm-hmm. future generations haven't had that opportunity to mix in that yeah. uh, in that way. What did you learn from your experience? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it, it did have that effect of just getting to know people from radically different backgrounds and with um, very different political commitments and, you know, being friends and not just friends, but like trusting somebody with your life when – um, you have a totally different outlook on, on how the world works and and taking each other seriously. You know, a lot of times we'd be, you know, sitting around. We had this barbecue grill that we turned into a, I don't know how to describe it. It was a fire pit, basically. We'd, we'd chop up pallets, toss it into the barbecue grill, light it up, and sit around smoking cigars uh, and and just talk about politics and, and, and the world. And, um, you know, I don't know, you, you just, you get a better sense of the, the breadth of America, I think. Um, so I learned a lot about that. I learned obviously about working under pressure, 
Um, and and I learned – You spent seven months in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. It was a seven-month deployment, probably about six on the ground. And um, my job – a big part of my job actually was, was just driving. So um, the rule was in order to go outside the wire, you had to have two people with a rifle qualification. And I was one of the uh, people in my unit who, who had a rifle qualification. So I spent a lot of time just driving my boss around or sometimes I'd volunteer to be an extra rifle on a convoy um, so that the um, – guy around the motor pool would owe me something so I could get a vehicle later on when I really needed one because the chocolate chip cookie bars only got me so far um, <laughs> out there. But uh, I guess that was the other thing you learned. And, and the way where it is really is a lot like campaigns is uh, just the improvisational quality of it all. You think of the military as this very orderly command and control thing. When you get out the field, like everything's kind of on the fly. And, and the informal networks wind up being even more important than the formal ones. And the other thing I learned there was, you know, because I was driving around the capital a lot, Kabul, um, it kind of reinforced my sense of how important cities are because, you know, they don't have a lot of the things that, that we, we try to provide in a city like South Benton. You know, they don't have um, clean, safe drinking water or, uh, you know, obviously, you know, safety in the way that we do um, or even trash pickup. I mean, you see what happens when you don't have trash pickup and it's, you know, uh, kids and, and, and sheep, you know, picking through trash on the side of the road. It's funny in, in, in training, they tell you, especially in combat training, they say, you know, watch out for any piles of garbage on the side of the road. Cause that's where they hide the IEDs. And then you get out there and you're like, what there's a, <laughs> the side of the road is nothing but a pile of garbage. Um, there's, there's not much you can do about it. Um, but you know, it was, it was a really meaningful experience at a really good unit. Um, and I, and I came home. Did you uh, did you see uh, live action? Did you? Yeah, I mean they they would uh, they would shoot rockets at our base a lot um, when I was at Bagram. Uh, when I was down in Kabul, it was a bit different. Um, and then um, yeah, we had a couple couple hair raising moments when I was out in Herat. So um, I mean, it's, it's not like I was a Navy SEAL, you know, guns blazing or anything like that. But uh, you know, enough to yeah. <laughs> enough what did to remember. you? What did you come away from? in terms of your analysis of the situation there. Well, and, and generally, uh, the U.S.'s role in, in the region. So I was very low on the totem pole there, and I don't know that, I've, that I ever got a really strategic picture of it all. I guess the biggest thing I got a sense of is um, you just had the sense that we were very temporary. You know, you... you when you when you fly especially over the over the Afghan mountains, you look down on the Hindu Kush and you can just picture like empires being smashed like eggshells on these mountain ranges over hundreds of years, you know, back to the Anglo Afghan wars. And you you realize how deep and long uh lasting some of these issues are. And I don't mean to say I'm discouraged. I mean I think we did a lot of good. Um, and I think it's good that we acted. Um, and it's certainly a good thing that the Taliban is, I mean, if you look at the indicators of well-being in Afghanistan compared to the years of the Taliban, it's a very good thing that, that they're not there anymore. But you also get a sense you can't just, you can't just roll up with our ideas of how things ought to work and expect in a matter of a few years with a, you know, even billions and billions of dollars that we just kind of sort things out. Um, because there's a, you know, just profoundly different ways of doing things. And, uh, and you have to have a certain regard for that. When you see some of the stuff that's going on now uh, relative to the travel ban and some of the policies of the Trump administration, do you look at it through the prism of someone who served uh, over there? Absolutely. I mean, the one thing I can't shake is is thinking about the civilians that we served with. So some of the units that we partnered with had um, embedded Afghans as interpreters or fixers. And I spent a lot of time with them. One of them, we, we, we started a fantasy football league, and we had a fantasy draft. And this one guy, he had no concept of how the game was played. Um, we had to explain to him why a kicker was not a good first choice for, for uh, <laughs> But we wound up doing better than I did, uh, partly, I think, because <laughs> he didn't think he knew any better than the numbers, and he just went by the numbers. But anyway, you know, you think of these guys, and they're not only just good guys, but guys who really took serious personal risk by getting involved with, with us, with the coalition. And the same was true in Iraq, uh, which I, I, I visited once as a contractor. I, I didn't I didn't serve there in uniform, but um, you know there were a lot of Iraqis, some of whom came to South Bend actually as refugees, um, and some of whom came on these special immigrant visa programs as a way of you know, supporting the people who put their lives on the line to support us. And I just think it would be very hard to look them in the eye right now 
knowing that the, the, these travel bans are going on that basically say that we, we, we don't have any regard for, for the risks they've taken uh, or that we paint them all with one brush, that we think an entire country is a risk to us um, based on, um, you know, mostly based on prejudice. You came back yeah. uh, and uh, you, uh, you ran an, what some would term a kind of audacious race for state treasurer <laughs> in Indiana in 2010. Um, what were you, 26? 20, yeah, I think 27 when I started that race in 2010. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. What moved you to do that? Um, well, basically, I, I really just didn't like the work that the state treasurer was doing. So, um, you know, state treasurer, in my view, ought to be a pretty technocratic job. But we had a state treasurer, a guy named Richard Murdoch, who was in office and who ran that office like an ideological outpost. And he did this really uh, awful thing, which is he used the fact that when, when the president rescued the auto companies, in particular Chrysler, which accounts for thousands of jobs uh, directly and then even more indirectly in, in Indiana, in northern Indiana. Yeah. He, I don't want to get into this technical finance stuff, but basically he used the fact that Indiana pension funds had Chrysler bonds as a basis to go to court and try to block the rescue from happening. In other words, an Indiana elected official tried to liquidate Chrysler, where thousands of people in our state worked. He was that ideological. It would have been devastating for you know we had uh, Howard County Kokomo, where uh, where Chrysler has a transmission plant. That place alone would have seen unemployment rates approaching thirty percent or more. I mean, depression level. It would have killed communities. And he's doing this because basically because he's mad at the president. He doesn't like the UAW. And I thought you know we've got to there's got to be a better way. So I asked who was running against this guy, and to my surprise, uh, I was kind of naive. I didn't understand how uphill it was. Maybe uh, people said no, nobody. So uh, so I started running, and eventually I, I took a leave from. Uh, well, no, actually I quit. I quit McKinsey, and um, uh, went to every chicken dinner. There are 80, 92 counties in Indiana. I made it to 89 of them. And just spent down all my savings, and because uh, I'd I'd been kind of living like a grad student while being paid like a like an MBA when I was at McKinsey, so I had enough saved up that I could spend like a year just campaigning. Um, I got my health insurance through the Navy because I'd joined the reserve by then, and um, uh, just learned so much about politics. You know, going to these these county fairs and sticking your hand out and talking to strangers and um, uh, trying to get them to vote for you. We did. I think our record was five parades in a day. Um, of course, I also learned fundraising and media and just all that stuff. We had a tiny team. I think at our maximum, our paid staff was maybe three, covering the whole state. But um, but there's no better way to learn how to run for office than to run for office. You could not have picked a worse year That's right. to run 2010. So yep. not only did you learn all those aspects of politics, but you learned what it was like to be on the wrong side of a wave. Got clobbered, yeah. Yeah, I got my head handed to me. It's really, it's really galling to know that hundreds of thousands of people voted against you, um, and especially for a down ticket race, you know. And and we didn't have that much money in the end. So I on the other hand, the uh, the uh, reassuring thing about down ballot races is people don't really know much. Yeah, so they're often true. voting partisan inclinations. Yeah, that's comforting. So, yeah, I'm just trying to spare your ego here. <laughs> uh, and then you came home to South Bend. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I had moved back to South Bend and and um, I got this fixer upper of a house uh, that, w- that was vacant, uh, kind of close to where I grew up, and um, and I was kind of licking my wounds, figuring out what to do next, and w- should I try to pick up orders with the Navy or try to get back to McKinsey or something like that, and and that was when the 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 mayor announced he wasn't going to run again, and that was the first open seat. In 24 years, Joe Kernan had been mayor, and then mm-hmm. he became lieutenant governor, and Steve Lickey became mayor for about 15 years, longest-serving mayor in history. And there was this open seat and this big kind of brewing uh, struggle between two factions of the Democratic Party uh, over what the primary was going to look like and, and who, who was going to be the nominee. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I had spent so much time, especially when, when I didn't live in South Bend, um, Whenever I ran into an old friend who was from there, we'd spent so much time, you know, over a beer or coffee talking about our hometown and what was happening there and what it would take to really get it going again, that I began to realize that, especially since economic development was something I knew a lot about, that, that I could make myself useful. And um, and so we ran and, and ran in this five-way primary and 
I think to, to a lot of people's surprise, probably including my own, wound up uh, wound up winning the primary. We got a majority in, in May and then uh, went on to the general election, did well there too. Yeah, 74%. Yeah. Yeah, that's good anywhere. That's not just in <laughs> South Bend. That's a that's that's a good uh, that's a good outcome. So talk about mayoring and uh, uh, what you've been able to do uh, there. Well, it's it's the best job in the world. It's it's my hometown, and and the town was really struggling. It had kind of a crisis of confidence, so we knew we had to do a lot of work right away to. Um, make sure that the that the administration was tuned up well, um, but also just to make sure that the community felt like we had a direction. And we, we started to work on that right away. I, I got an amazing team of just, just rock stars who were willing to help out. How much did your analytics background and some of the stuff that you did at McKinsey help? And did you attract people who had those skills? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it gave me a mentality around you know, performance management and, and making sure that we really worked on things where we could see the impact we were having. And uh, and I tried to really bring that to the team. I mean, it sounds a bit a bit nerdy, but just that kind of metrics-based, you know, looking at what you can measure and holding yourself accountable for whether it's working, uh, I think was really powerful and, and uh, a really important part of why things started to go well for us as a city. Um, we um, uh, the, Probably the most ambitious thing we did was when I took office, nobody could tell us how many vacant and abandoned houses there were. There were so many. So we started counting, and we did this really rigorous analysis and determined there were about 1,300 of them and figured out the different market strata and neighborhood conditions and came out of it after about a year of analysis with an almost childlike goal, which is I said, let's, let's address 1,000 houses in 1,000 days and just rally the community around that. And it was just a What does that mean, addressing them? Well, it meant either fix them up or tear them down, you know, fix the ones we could. But we knew that a lot of them were physically collapsing. And so the, the important thing was to make sure that people didn't have to live next to a collapsing house. And so with a combination of stepped-up code enforcement and uh, we, we put together a lot of funds for demolition, we, we were able to save over 400 and the rest we, we got rid of. And there's vacant lots now, which is not a perfect outcome. And we're still working on how to make value out of those lots of land. But... Uh, dramatically better, especially for people living in the neighborhood, than having those those crumbling houses. And I think it really lifted the morale in the city, and also just coming together around a goal that was that uh, uh, that ambitious. Because we didn't, we weren't sure we could pull it off, but I, I sensed that you know if we stretched, we could do it. And uh, and we had to get creative. But the biggest thing, what makes it come to mind, is by publishing this very publicizing this very clear goal, such that it would be very obvious if we failed. It created a certain motivating power on my team and on the community and on me to do whatever it took to make it happen. And, um, and sure enough, it happened. You also took the old Studebaker plant that I guess had been kind of laying dormant yeah. uh, and turned it into kind of an incubator. Yeah, it was used as kind of a warehouse. And uh, I think it's only, you know, there were acres and acres of Studebaker factories. Most of them had been torn down. This one was still there. So this stout six-story, fifth of a mile long. It's 800,000 square feet. It's enormous. And it's kind of cool. I mean, it's brick. It's got windows. It's not like the way factories look today. Um, but it was also, you know, really all the windows, you know, half the windows were smashed. And, um, and it was kind of a symbol of what we were up against as a city. And so uh, we partnered with a, 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 an entrepreneur who had figured out a way to – it turns out that, that the way these – just the geography of it, um, where all these plants were sitting, is on this really rich concentration of fiber optic cable. Because when they laid out the cable that makes up the Internet, it had to – you know, it has to go somewhere. People forget the Internet is still a physical thing. Um, and and so it followed a lot of the old railway and highway right-of-ways because that's where you could get the conduit. And there's this, con- there's this area in South Bend, south of downtown, where we have uh, cold weather and cheap power, both of which are very useful if you're in the data center business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also all this fiber optic kind of connectivity makes it a perfect place to put these, these data centers. And then we had this entrepreneur who figured out a way to suck the heat that comes off these computers. You spend tons of money cooling them off. We figured out a way to suck up the heat and, and then put it into the HVAC system of the building and buy down the cost of you know offices. So this thing is on track to now be the largest – uh, largest mixed-use technology center in the Midwest. And it's a long project. It was, it's taking years, but already bearing a lot of fruit. And uh, and also just fun, to, symbolically, right, to turn this thing that was a symbol of what we were up against and what we were down on economically and turn it into a symbol of our future. You and I have talked about this, uh, but 
you know, we just saw a big debate and even a debate within the party, and we'll get to the party debate in a second, mm. uh, about the issue of trade. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no question that throughout the Midwest that part, is, part of what has happened to manufacturing is a lot of jobs over the years yeah. have been shipped overseas yeah. uh, because of labor costs and environmental standards and right. so on that made it more cost-effective for companies to do that. But it seems more and more like the challenge is today uh, is how do we keep up with technology and the fact that robotics and uh, automation are now becoming more and more prevalent, present uh, pressured carrier into staying. They yeah. say, okay, we'll stay, but we're going to automate a large right. portion of our plant so you get the plant but not the jobs. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know that you've been thinking a lot about that. Yeah. Um, a, how do you deal with that as a political issue, and how do you deal with it as a societal issue? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an existential question, especially for communities like ours in the industrial Midwest. Um, first of all, there are ways to win. I've tried to be very level with um, with the community about what will and won't happen, and what won't happen is another company coming and and, and employing twenty thousand people in manufacturing the way Studebaker did. But what we do have is a lot of companies that employ maybe one or two hundred people at a time, and the way it works is kind of marching up the value chain. So finding industries where, or products where because of some intellectual property or a security aspect or something about the application or the service, there's some reason why it does need to be made in the U.S. And when it is made in the U.S., I can sell why it ought to be made in South Bend because we have great uh, land labor, utilities, taxes. We're very competitive and, and we're a great community. But there's a bigger picture, which I think is demonstrating that there is a role for American workers to play in a modern and globalized economy that's not just the role of victim. And so really highlighting some of these jobs that are being created, again, much less labor intensive than it used to be, you know, 100 people instead of 1,000 mm-hmm. for a certain level of output. But the jobs it does create, they're good jobs, they pay well, and, and there's a level of security there. What we have to do at the same time, I think, is figure out how to, we're still fighting the last war. I mean, NAFTA happened a while ago. And uh, a lot of the jobs that were lost then, it would be very hard to bring back no matter what because of automation. We have some things ahead of us that we got to get on top of. Take automated driving, uh, which uh, there are a lot of reasons mayors are very excited about. It's fascinating, actually, from a land use perspective, if you don't need so many parking lots, Mm -hmm. from an economic perspective, if families' assets don't have to be tied up in in owning a vehicle because you can have an automated one pick you up. Public transit becomes less expensive. Yeah, absolutely. But what does that mean for millions of people? Right. Who not only who drive a looming as a crisis. Living, yeah. yeah, but this one we see coming. Right. So unlike, you know, I understand why some people were surprised by the impact of, of what happened in the 90s, the automation and the globalization then. This one, we can see it coming. Yeah. What are we doing about it? There is yeah. shockingly well, There's little. a cost of driverless government, too. You know? <laughs> so, uh, hey, we're going to, in the interest of entrepreneurism, we're going to take a short break right. and we'll be right back. You got reelected uh, uh, in 2016, I guess, with uh, uh, 15, eight, yeah, 15, with 80% of the vote. Yeah. But in the midst of that campaign, you wrote an op-ed that got quite a bit of attention in which you disclosed the fact that you're gay. And I, I, let me just read a part of it. I was well into adulthood before I prepared to acknowledge I was prepared to acknowledge the simple fact that I am gay. It took years of struggle and growth for me to recognize that it's just a fact of like, life, like having brown hair uh, and part of who I am. Uh, but it's clear to me that at a moment like this, being more open about it could do some good. For a local student struggling with her sexuality, it might be helpful for an openly gay mayor to send the message that her community will always have a place for her and for a conservative resident from a different generation whose unease with social change is partly rooted in the impression that he doesn't know anyone gay. Perhaps a familiar face can be uh, a reminder that we're all in this together as a community. Uh, Talk to me about that and your decision and and your journey uh, yeah. that you hint at here. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a long journey for me. I really admire people in, in college or even high school who figure that out about themselves and uh, and are able to come out. Um, uh, because I was not, I mean, I spent years, if willpower alone could, could make somebody straight, uh, you know, and, and as somebody who was able through willpower to, to, to do a lot of things, um, uh, I, I would have... 
you know, especially when you begin to realize you might have political aspirations and you want to serve in the military at a time, you know, when I joined the military, that was not, uh, you could not be out, uh, and, and serve at the same time. Um, but, uh, a certain point I realized it was really dumb to try to fight this. This is who I am. And, um, and I wasn't getting any younger and, uh, and I didn't want to have, uh, uh, kind of a double life. I think the deployment helped me, you know, it was, it was 2014 when I deployed and I, I think, uh, it helped me realize you only get to be one person. Cause when I was there, I was trying to, um, uh, I was trying to kind of keep people from figuring out that I had a day job, um, uh, as mayor. Cause that just complicates things uh, when people know that about you. Um, but I realized very quickly, you only get to be one person. And, uh, and I also think it was important to me to do it before another election, um, to have people know about that when they went to the polls. Um, and, uh, and so I just did it. I mean, and on some level it's frustrating, you know, straight people don't have to come out, uh, let alone put it in the newspaper. But I knew that if I didn't, it would be, it would, it would just be even, you know, even more complicated or, or messy or people would say that I was, uh, who knows. So I just did it. I just wrote up this article and put it out there. And, um, the really touching thing, you know, I didn't do it for any reason besides that I needed to do that and get on with my life. But the really touching thing is I had people approach me later and say that, you know, something along the lines of like, I am that kid. I was that kid in, in, in school who, who, you know, feels, um, uh, safer, or better able to, to, you know, be who I am because, because you wrote that or because you came out. My hope is, you know, 20 years from now, the way this works is you just, you, know, you just on your way to a charity function and, and, and your date is same sex and, and people notice that and that's that, right? You don't have to come out. <laughs> it's been a pretty remarkable stretch in social history these yeah. last few years relative to this issue. Yeah. We've seen uh, enormous amounts of change. That uh, must have been um, moving to, to you as someone having gone through this yeah. journey. Yeah, I mean, when I was first wrestling with, with this and also realizing I wanted to be in public service, I thought it was an either-or. Uh, it never would have crossed my mind that you could, um, you know, if I, even when I was in college, which wasn't that long ago. We had Barney Frank mm. uh, on this podcast, and he spoke about that, about when he was a young politician, and yeah. uh, there would be gay couples at his events, and they would go home, and he would go home alone because he felt he had to choose yeah. between his political life yeah. and, and, and his personal life. Yeah, I think that was the sense, uh, and and until very recently, uh, and we didn't really know what kind of thin ice, you know, I was walking onto either. But um, but it was fine. That's the thing, you know. So so the next day, I, I go to. I remember going to my first event was like a bike to work event, and uh, it was it was the same day that the article came out, and and I showed up and. Um, talked about biking to work and there were all these tv cameras and they were asking me all these questions including not, some not really, that interested in biking to work probably yeah exactly and they're yeah. asking me all these questions you could see on the looks of the face some of the reporters were embarrassed they were asking the questions others like couldn't wait to get to me and um and some really insulting questions too like you know is this because like the republicans have something on you that you're coming out when you are um and uh and i just talked about you know biking to work and so anything else i had to say was in the essay uh, and then i went to my next event which is uh, i think we were cutting a ribbon on a soup kitchen and we were talking about hunger and they asked all these questions and i told them a lot about hunger and eventually they realized this wasn't my thing this is you know i'm going to do mayor stuff but um this is just part of who i am and um uh and and then i think a lot of people actually were the most interesting thing to me were, was people who were a little older maybe a little more conservative who found it as an opportunity to demonstrate that they were accepting, mm-hmm. you know, um, because uh, South Bend is a fairly conservative community. Yeah. Especially socially, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's more, you know, democratic than not, but that's largely part of a labor tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, the Catholic labor tradition, um, that is not the, the known for being, you know, on the bleeding edge of social change. But, um, I think, it, I think it also helped that people knew me already. You know? mm-hmm. Um, and and so it was just as you detail. said. I mean, it was uh, yeah. you 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 were the guy they knew, yeah. And that made it easier to make that to make that uh, to to embrace that reality. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the same way that I was, I found myself coming back as the sort of, um, you know, sort of the community's relative who was in the military deployed. Uh, you know, now I was sort of the community's gay son or something. <laughs> so let me, let me, let's talk a bit about the Democratic Party. You talked about this race for mayor and there was a factional mm. fight and nobody, well, you walked into the same kind of uh, fight uh, just in, in the last few weeks in yeah. your race for, uh, 
for DNC chair. By the time you got in, there were two well-established candidates, yeah. uh, uh, Tom Perez, who had the support of the sort of Clinton-Obama faction, and, yeah. and, and Keith Ellison, who had the support of the Sanders faction. Uh, what made you thought there was a, 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 think that there was an opportunity there for you, and, and why did you feel important? It important well, to do well. You never. Um, Some people would say you have a better job now, but uh, yeah, that's probably true. Uh, it, it's you never grow up hoping to be chair of a national party. At least I've never met anybody who sits on his mother's knee and says, "I want to chair the DNC one day." Um, really Unless tough. they want to get spanked. That's <laughs> a really painful job. Yeah, um, but it and it never crossed my mind before the Trump election, but. It was this moment where it seemed like the party was figuring out where it's going. And the parties also really struggled to connect, especially with parts of the country like where I'm from. And there was this factional struggle, like you said. You know, it was coming to be regarded as, as kind of a proxy fight between wings of the party, which I think is so unhelpful because these, these, these so-called wings have like 98% similar values. And um, But you're right about one thing, which is um, uh, you come from – that part of the country that is suddenly a fascination uh, because of the Trump vote. Yeah. And uh, what did Donald Trump do in South Bend? You know, our county went 50-50, which, mm-hmm. is, which is crazy. Uh, I mean, by our historical patterns, it really should have been a county. That, and why that do you think that is? Well, I think part of it was turnout. Um, part of it was this sense that nobody was really talking to us, that, you know, the message of the campaign – especially the Democrat on the Democratic side, was about the individuals. You know, the whole theme of Hillary's campaign, I'm with her. We had their T-shirts and our buttons, I'm with her. And then when it became clear that he was going to be the nominee, it was more and more I'm against him was the message. And the person at home is saying, uh, okay, but like who's, who's talking about me? And he was doing that. He was speaking to people. It was all bull, but, but, but he was speaking to people. Um, and I think that that really mattered especially in a community that, that has been really kicked around by, by economic conditions. Um, and so, you know, you had this, you had this wave and it, it was in, especially, you know, industrial communities where you had, he was really going after our people to some extent. I mean, to the extent we've always been able to count on uh, a lot of folks aligned with labor, for example, and, and a lot of working class voters. Um, he had this message about fairness and unfairness that, should be the bread and butter of the Democratic Party, but we just didn't really get into it. Every time yeah, he said— the game's rigged against you. Yeah, and every time he said that, you know, instead of us saying, uh, like, yeah, the system's got—the system's very unfair, and, and, and here's how we would fix it, we sounded like we were the party saying the system is perfectly fine. Um, and, and we missed an opportunity to talk about what we know best, which is how to make sure that economic and political structures are more fair. It's what Democrats are supposed to care about most. And we had, we had fairness as a theme kind of stolen from us, I think, uh, with, with devastating effect. Do you think uh, the things that he's doing now relative to trade, um, the, 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 the strong arming of corporations to get them to keep their uh, factories here, um, some of the immigration stuff, uh, do you think that's resonating with voters in your area? I think to some extent, I mean, symbolically, you look at the carrier thing, and even if, you know, if you peel behind the surface of it, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. A lot of those jobs still aren't coming back. But um, plus, it's an absurd way to run economic policy. You're going to, like, personally go uh, – mayors can do that, personally go, you know, one deal at a time. It is sort of president as um, mayor. But, uh, yeah, yeah, in a way it is. Um, except that, like, mayors do real stuff. <laughs> like, um, you know, it's 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 – it's a lot of symbolic, a lot of gestures, I think, on his part. But those gestures say something, right? So mm-hmm. even though, like the carrier thing, for example, uh, may be hollow, it shows that or creates the impression that he cares. Um, and so I think that does resonate. The immigration stuff, I mean, the, the frustrating thing about that is a lot of people are being led to believe that their problems are being created by immigrants. And it's just not true. You look at the math, you look at, um, you know, what what actually happens when uh, families, a lot of whom pay taxes but can't collect benefits or, or in our community. You look at what it actually does to support a place like South Bend, for example. We're about 15% Latino. I don't know almost by definition how many of them are undocumented. But um, but what I do know is that there's a lot of people who, who have come and are you know rebuilding neighborhoods that were on death's door after Eastern European immigrants moved out decades ago. Um, 
and this just completely misses that. But um, unfortunately, it's not that hard to give people someone to blame, um, especially when you're talking in abstractions. And even though most people I know have never, you know, they're not able to personally point to a case when they were harmed by an immigrant or when they witnessed voter fraud or when they benefited from some economic uh, gesture by Donald Trump. Um, in the abstract, it, it, it kind of looks good. And yeah, we, we got to take seriously the power that this symbolic action has in a place like Indiana. And in, in terms of strategy for the Democratic Party, you, you, uh, you, by all accounts, you made a good accounting of yourself in the, in the uh, if you can, by all accounts, make a good accounting, but uh, in the race uh, and uh, came out enhanced in the process. But Tom Perez walked away as the chair. What advice would you give him about uh, how to proceed and how to proceed, particularly in communities like yours? Well, my hope is that he, first of all, recognizes that we need to have a presence in every kind of community, including ones where it's very uphill. Because if you think only one cycle at a time, you may never invest in counties or states that could in fact turn blue with sustained attention. Well, in 2008, nobody thought uh, Indiana right. would yeah. go blue, it and it did. Yeah. And uh, uh, But he campaigned in Indiana. The, pre- you know, the president campaigned in Indiana, and it worked. Right. Um, and you know, even in areas we're never going to win, it really matters. If you're, adding, if you're doing the math across the state, it really matters in some of these red counties whether they go 80-20 or whether they go 60-40, even if we're not going to win either way. Because that allows you to, you know, get put over the top by your more democratic areas. So I think showing up everywhere is really important. Uh, I hope there is a resistance to the appeal of silver bullets, whether it's data or demographics, the idea that anything's going to save us without us really doing the work. Uh, And my hope is that he will uh, direct the party towards working from the bottom up, recognizing that, you know, the DNC is always vulnerable to this gravitational force that makes it treat the presidency like it's the only mm-hmm. office that matters. But really, it's uh, it's everything from school boards to county sheriffs all the way up through state houses, especially state houses. I mean, I think that the state level of government is where people can really get away with murder. I think ALEC, uh, the think tank, which doesn't even do federal on the policy, right, yes. is now the most powerful one in the country, or, or at least has made the most policy. Well, we've seen a shift of a 1,000 legislative seats yeah. across the country, 33 legislatures today in the hands that of the really Republican matters. Party is a pretty big shift over the last uh, over the last ten years. Coming from Indiana, and understand yeah. that your senator Joe Donnelly, your right. former congressman who yeah. you work for, uh, faces a tough reelect in yeah. two thousand and eighteen. Um, there is this group that's formed that says that any member of Congress who or politician who cooperates with Trump in any way, who casts a vote in favor of a policy, who casts a vote in favor of an appointment. T uh, would be a primary. Um, that seems problematical when you have ten Democrats running in states that yeah. are red states. Joe Donnelly included. Yeah, uh, you don't have to handle that problem as chair, right? <laughs> because you're not going to be the chair. But since you're in that chair, I'm going to ask you right. right across from me uh, how how should the party deal with that challenge? Yeah, the problem is it's it's profoundly self-defeating uh, if it leads to, you know, if, if it makes it that much harder for us to uh, beat back these these Republican majorities. Look, I, I think the way to think about it, if you're a committed progressive, is to support in any given constituency the most progressive candidate who can actually win. Uh, now, I will say there's another way to square the circle, which is, uh, as as Bernie Sanders demonstrated by his uh, support among certain people who uh, wound up voting for Trump, um, that the kind of left-center spectrum we're working with is, is beginning to crumble and that there are positions, uh, you know, economic populist positions uh, or uh, even some, some other kind of positions around uh, criminal justice, for example, that actually really resonate with uh, independents or libertarians or, mm-hmm. or people who would otherwise Koch brothers are working hard on the criminal yeah. justice reform. Yeah. So, you know, it's not as simple as saying you should be this far left or you should be this far to the center. In fact, I think one of the big problems in democratic politics is an ideology is that it's organized completely around Republican politics and ideology. And the only way we take somebody's measure is to evaluate how vigorously they oppose or how closely they imitate Republican policies rather than just deriving our policies from our values. 
values, uh, and then supporting or opposing uh, people and ideas based on how they map to that. Um, but I think, you know, back to your question, look, we've, we've, we've got to recognize that there's going to be a diversity of opinion within the Democratic Party, and that, you know, a Democrat in Indiana is, is going to be a little different than a Democrat in Portland, and that's okay. Um, that's part of what makes our party robust and, and, and strong. Um, but if we want to win, we've got to concentrate our efforts on the opposition, the real opposition, and that is congressional Republicans and this president that they enable. What about you? You, you, uh, you're a obviously talented, skilled uh, politician and public official, but you're in a state that's a very difficult state uh, for Democrats. What? Uh, how do you advance your uh, career in public service? Well, I'm I'm pretty optimistic about our state for Democrats. You know, we've had more Democratic governors than than not in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think uh, we've got you know a Democratic senator. I, I was there when the president uh, turned Indiana blue, President Obama in 2008. So it can be done. Um, the good news for me is I'm young and uh, relatively young, and uh, and I have this job that I really love. So it's not like I'm in a hurry to do something else. Um, certainly, don't need uh, to do something different. Being mayor of your hometown. Is uh, is the most rewarding. It's hard. <laughs> it's really hard, um, but it's so rewarding um, that uh, time is kind of on my side. I know I can't do it forever, um, but I think time is on my side, and, and I think that uh, you know I've found so far that if you just keep your head down and really try to do whatever it is you're doing very well, um, the future will take care of itself. And, and, and if you don't, then really nothing else matters. Well, Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for, for being me. at the IOP. Uh, and uh, and for being here with me today. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.